Consensus 2018. Oh, that's the other event. This is the, the one true event, one Bitcoin event. The Kaiser Report live on stage. Yay. We're going to be um, simulcasting live on stage here. All right, we're live. All right. Hello. Yeah. Did you turn your eyes on? Yeah, mine is on. So I want to learn about these crypto billionaires and trillionaires, crypto, and the new economic model tearing it up to globe. Why the US dollar is going to become extinct? Why countries like Iran, China, Russia, Germany are dropping out of SWIFT, dropping out of the dollar, adopting Bitcoin, transforming the globe? That's what I want here. So that excites me. It excites me because we, this is how we started in 2011, Adventures in Crypto. We spoke at the first Bitcoin conference in 2011. We've covered every major crypto story and Kaiser report ever since. Uh, we created probably more crypto millionaires around the world than anybody. This is better? Yeah. yeah. All right, great. And uh, the system is, uh, next slide. <laughs> this is old school. This uh, we started Heisenberg Capital in 2013. So we've uh, invested in these companies, Shapeshift, BitPay, Kraken, BitPace, and Unicoin. Bit so Bitfinex, Factum, Storage, Uphold, BitCash, which is Kim.com's company. And we just made an investment in Casa Hotel, which is a storage uh, solution getting a lot of attention here at Crypto Week, Blockchain Week, New York City. Next, over here. Next, uh, the, no, okay, this is a high square capital. The nature of crypto is uncertain. No one yet knows what Bitcoin is. This is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Heisenberg is our is our guiding force in all of this. Next, again, snappy brother. All right, uh, this is our friend Jameson Locke. Not even a white paper defines Bitcoin. White papers are starting points, not finishing lines. Even Satoshi's own understanding of what they had built evolved over time. This is an important concept because the Bitcoin concept came from really a vector that was unknown and unprepared for. It is an asset class that shares characteristics of stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, but it is unique. In of itself. This is what Muriel Rubini doesn't understand. This is what Paul Crumb doesn't understand. It's kind of compared to other stuff. Uh, unfortunately for them, it doesn't really compare to anything else. It's unique in its own properties. And it is unknown in a very profound sense. It's going somewhere that we don't quite understand yet. To the moon. Who? To the moon. <laughs> yes, to the moon. I don't think this works. Hello, hello. Oh, yeah. It works a little bit. Yeah. All right. What's that? What's happening next? Um, you know, can I interject with, oh, a, with a, a tweet headline from just a few moments ago? Uh, hello, hello. Um, you know, in terms of the uncertainty, uh, one thing that is important with Bitcoin, and I, 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 I'm kind of a fan of Bitcoin, not blockchain, but Donald Trump just uh, tweeted. He, his tweets make headlines. President Xi of China and I are working together to give massive Chinese phone company ZTE a way to get back into business fast. Too many jobs in China lost. Commerce Department has been instructed to get it done. 
So, um, this one I think might be a little bit. Hello. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, quite fascinating to me in terms of this end of empire sort of days where the capricious nature of the emperor of the world, whether it's Trump or Obama before him or Bush before him, is that suddenly, you know, this dollar, global dollar financial empire, this empire of debt, they could just turn the switch off, turn, like lock Iran, they locked Iran first off of the SWIFT system, then the, Russia, then Venezuela. They could just turn off the system, but as soon as they do that, what happens is they have to find solutions and alternatives. That's right, they work around it. They presented the problem, they work around it. So I don't know if you know what happened to ZTE. Here's a company, it's like 17, 18 billion dollars a year revenue, and the US decided uh, a few, I guess a few days ago that they, that basically they sanctioned them, that you could, they could, no US company could sell them parts for the next five years, and they promptly went out of business. 75,000 people lost their jobs. Today the emperor says, oh, we're gonna help them get back in business after destroying the company like that overnight. So it's capricious. It's capricious, and in this sort of fiat days, I think that's a warning shot. It's, it could happen to China, it could happen to Iran, it could happen to Russia, it could happen to Venezuela today. But you know, maybe half the people agree that they should be cut off the grid. But in a globalized system, if you want a globalized fiat system of globalized trade based on your dollar, well, you have to be careful about pulling that weapon, pulling that gun, and you know, making that shot. And they did it once, and then they can't stop doing it. And now alternatives are going to emerge. There's an alternative. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. William Goldman, famous screenwriter. Next. Tiger spotted the RC, turns out to be a large raccoon. Next. Why are you raising it? Let's begin. Next. Oh, yeah. There's one of our shows. Next. A typical, typical troll. Next. All right, so the story begins really in 1971. Next. So this is the rise of the central banks, 1971. Next, uh, this is Richard Nixon. He ends Bretton Woods and takes the U.S. Uh, all all connection to the gold standard ends, and we go into a fiat currency system, fiat currency. But it's not referencing anything like gold. It's referencing other fiat currencies, which reference other fiat currency, uh, another fiat currency. Next, uh, this is what he did. It's uh, U.S. dollars no longer redeemable. We know the details. Next. It's called infinite regress. So it's fiat, referencing fiat, referencing fiat, referencing fiat. This is um, like the expression turtles all the way down. When somebody says, what's holding up the earth? They say turtle. What's holding up that turtle? Another turtle. It's turtles all the way down. Well, it's infinite regress. The fiat currency system, whether it's dollars or yen or uh, drachma, which got overtaken by the euro or whatever, it's all referencing itself in a daisy chain of self-referential pigeon-chested, ego-boosting, central bank-wanking nonsense, which has no value. Next. All right, this is what, 17, seven times in 17 years, central banks are buying, uh, increasing their uh, balance sheet to $17 trillion, $20 trillion. Uh, every single mistake, all these government banks, they simply stick it on their balance sheet and they float more fiat money to overcome the problem. They'll start a war, they'll start a famine, they'll kill a lot of people. They'll just spend lots of phony money and then to, at the, periodically, they put on a 
central bank's balance sheet, and they say, forget about it. As long as interest rates are low, which by the way, we keep interest rates low by buying all this debt, by buying all these bonds with infinite amount of credit, we can just keep interest low forever because it's all finance, it's all a Ponzi scheme, doesn't make any difference. Next, you got uh, global debt to GDP, 240%. Obviously, the trend is a lot, the zooming a lot higher, uh, out of control. Next. And uh, this is the dollar, it used to be backed by gold, then it was backed by something like gold, and then it's not backed by anything. It's just a piece of paper that you exchange, it's backed by nothing, it's a story of a bad, Wilton Goldman couldn't have written this next. And uh, Naomi Prince has a book out called Collusion, talks about all the central banks working together, colluding with each other. So when you say the Fed is thinking about raising interest rates a quarter of a point here, a quarter of a point there, Bank of Japan expands their balance sheet by significantly more than the Fed or European Central Bank. Or, uh, so they all collude together, they all work together. The net value of all central bank assets is bad debt keeps on going higher and higher, interest rates keep going lower and lower because finance is global finance scheme. As Mitch Feinstein says in the famous book called Planet Ponzi, you can't taper a Ponzi scheme. The author of that book, Mitch Feinstein, is in the audience. Mitch, wait, look at people now. There he is, the author of Planet Ponzi, Mitch Feinstein. Very good. Thank you, Mitch. Available now in two languages. All right, what else next? Uh, biggest bond bubble in 3,000 years is what we're. This is where we're at. If you look at interest rates going back to 3,000 years ago, uh, you know they haven't been this low in 3,000 years. That's that's a bubble. Krugman, Rubini, this is your bubble. Look at that freaking bubble. When that bubble blows, watch out. Next. Uh, every fiat currency since the Romans first began the practice in the first century has ended in a devaluation and eventual collapse. That's true. The average lifespan of a paper money system is 27 years. They don't last. They're, it's, it's all goes to shit. Next. <laughs> Thanks to the rise of central banks, you have another problem. Now this is where this thing's get fun. This is where it gets interesting. This is really why the Kaiser Report was invented. This is where we go into super overdrive. Are, are we ready, honey? Buddy? Okay. Next. The problem is the rise of financial terrorism. Lowering cost of financial fraud to zero has created a generation of financial terrorists. I give you exhibit A. Jamie Dimon. Cut from the same cloth as a terrorist. He doesn't go to the Madrasa. He goes to Gabby He doesn't misquote the Koran. He misquotes Adam Smith. He's going to kill himself and others. Right there. But the central bank is getting full support. This is what we have to get rid of if we want to make the world safe for capitalism again. Next. These are the terms that we have to understand in the wake of the fiat currency central bank driven terrorist system. Market fundamentalism, financial fanaticism, interest rate apartheid. This is an interesting situation for those who have actually lived in apartheid system. My buddy Rand is here in South Africa. The Bantustan that we live in are high interest rates versus the other side of town which has low interest rates. If you try to get a loan and you're not part of the Goldman Sachs team, it costs you more than 0%. If you're living on the right side of town, 0%. Interest rate apartheid. Next. <clears throat> uh, this gives uh, some interesting headlines. And you see how banks openly terrorize us. Uh, RBS units told clients to hang themselves. Uh, this is the, yeah. Uh, this, uh, you know, for those who don't know the UK system or what, what is over there, this is the Royal Bank of Scotland, and they had a unit called GRG, Global Restructuring Group, 
And the RBS Bank, by the way, is owned by the taxpayer in the United Kingdom, and they were bailed out in 2008, 2009 financial crisis. So the taxpayer owns about 85% of the, of the bank. But while the taxpayer was owning the bank, uh, GRG, RBS needing to um, <laughs> fill their uh, asset, their balance sheet again, make it look good for all the new requirements. Well, they just like smash and grab the assets from thousands of British companies, small, medium-sized enterprises. Basically, they would force them into uh, restructuring their loans and say, like make up crazy claims that why they had to suddenly come up with, say, a hotel owner had a five million pound um, loan against their hotel. They would say, you have to pay it by Friday on Monday. And of course, they couldn't come up with five million cash and basically they seized all these assets. Um, we have friends who have had their companies seized under this uh, unit, GRG. And it's taken all of these years and all, so many inquiries and the, the Financial Conduct Authority, which used to be the financial, uh, it used to be something more serious. They keep on like lowering the, the, the level of it. So it's just bad conduct has created this situation. Where in an economy, a post-financial crisis economy, where we need uh, jobs more than anything, they were destroying the creators of jobs. Right, right. RBS is the Jimmy Savile of banking. Uh, you know, I don't know if everybody knows Jimmy Savile is a, a serial uh, pedophile uh, in the UK, caught diddling over a thousand children, some in hospitals, some dead. And a very good friend of uh, Margaret Thatcher. She, he was made a knight by Margaret Thatcher, of course. And uh, RBS, this is the model that they, uh, they treat their customers uh, in the same way. I mean, it was no different from anything you saw here in New York, the Gotti or the Gambinos or anything. They just, it was literal life breaking and they destroyed these companies. Nobody's gone to prison, nobody's given back their bonuses, nobody gave back their wages, nobody gave up anything. Um, they're all, uh, I think one dude had to give up his lordship or whatever it was that he had some sort of title. Yeah, they, uh, this is actually, you know, Britain or London, the city of London tends to be where all of the major banks outsource their big frauds. So AIG went through London, Bernie Madoff went through London, the London Whale obviously was in London. So if you have a big bank here, some country somewhere, and you want to commit an absolute atrocious vile act of financial terrorism, you do it through London. Because the laws there are accommodated for financial terrorism, they have a law there, for example, infinite rehypothecation, which allows you to lend the same bond, not 10 times, 20 times, but an infinite amount of times. Uh, this again is interest rate apartheid. So RBS is a bank, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it has an internal memo, uh, customers can kill themselves, we don't care. But there is every single major bank in the UK and the US and Europe is pretty much been found guilty of some atrocious uh, behavior like this. What next? Let's see. And by the way, you know, these are important stories to understand in terms of the history and the context of Bitcoin because, you know, you can't understand Bitcoin, for example, without understanding the cypherpunks, but you can't understand it either without understanding the need for it. The central banks, the, the, the banks, all the, the collusion and the rigging and the fiat currency fraud that has happened to create a situation where Bitcoin has become such a huge success. Right. And it was needed in the first place. Well, like any like prostitution ring or pedophile ring, the perpetrators groom the women or they groom the children. So here at RBS, they show they gave bonuses to staff who could identify candidates to be restructured or, in other words, to be, be raped. That would be another word that goes here. So RBS is a rapist, essentially, financial rapist. Next. 
Uh, Australia's top banks have charged dead clients for advice. So I believe the word is necrophilia. I think we can fuck that. So here's a banker. He likes to fuck that people. Uh, he's lodged in the community as an excellent example. Something you should look up to. He's a role model. And uh, apparently his wife died seven years ago and unaware. Uh, next. Moral hazard code for financial terrorism. So this is a phrase you, you hear often. Uh, bankers will use this phrase. Alan Greenspan will use this phrase quite often. They say, why do you allow specialists in the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to engage in insider trading at the expense of price discovery and rip people off all day long? He said, well, you need a little moral hazard to make markets work, keep them open, keep liquidity going. So this is a, one of the code words. If you're reading the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, if you see the word moral hazard, substitute financial terrorism, and you understand what's being said in that story. Next. Uh, this is a great story. So Lloyd's, another bank in the UK, terrorist, pedophile type bank. Uh, they say uh, the employees are so stressed out to make their quota sell insurance that they sold insurance to themselves <laughs> to hit his target to, to prevent him from being uh, fired. So, it's like what happened to Goldman Sachs when they got caught holding the sacks of shit they were trying to offload on the pension funds. Yeah, it's, uh, this, this is being like autoerotic suicide. I think that would be the analog, keeping on my theme with uh, uh, smutty uh, analogies. Uh, you know, uh, like uh, Keith Carradine in that uh, fan cop hotel. This is what they're, this is what they're engaged. Okay, next. Oh, this is a great other story. So here's the uh, former Chucker, Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne. Um, he didn't like the fact that HSBC was going to have to like pay a fine or lose money or be disbarred from banking in the United States because they facilitated um, billions of dollars of money laundering for Mexican drug lords and facilitated the deaths of 60,000 Mexicans. And many of them were beheaded. Uh, George Osborne wasn't didn't like the fact that HSBC was gonna, maybe going to have to pay a penalty for that. So he interceded into American legal system, overrode the entire American legal system and got uh, a waiver for HSBC. They didn't have to go to jail or anything. So here you have a great example of the Uber banking system out of Switzerland, the uh, Bank of International Settlements, and uh, the, the other body, major body there, essentially operating without any legal uh, oversight whatsoever, playing ball, providing cover. Now I remember when uh, the regulators and, you know, Paul Krugman sorts of people say, oh, Bitcoin is evil and bad because uh, people could buy drugs with it. Well, HSBC actually built uh, boxes shaped specifically for the Mexican drug cartels to deliver cash to some Casa de Cambios um, to launder their money. They, they actually had a one-on-one -on -one relationship designing specific designer uh, carrier bags for them. So they got caught laundering these billions, not quite as much as Wachovia, which was then bought by Wells Fargo, which is owned by Warren Buffett. Uh, Wells Fargo, uh, Wachovia admitted to laundering something like 357 billion. For the right, Wachovia, right. 300 something billion. HSBC was found, uh, I think they admitted to 8 billion that they laundered. So, uh, th and they got off with nothing. They paid, a, I think, a billion in fines, something like ridiculous. Right, the model is you keep 90 cents of every fraud you commit. Ten cents goes to, to pay, um, like a, a Schneiderman or some other corrupt public official. Uh, next, uh, you know, Wachovia, three hundred eighty billion. Uh, Mexican drug deals, Wells Fargo deal. Uh, Warren Buffett, of course, is the biggest shareholder of Wells Fargo now. That is not that way. And uh, you know, he's been in the news lately 
But no, no headlines. You notice the, the screaming headline, they laundered 380 billion. Where does it say the US dollar facilitates this? Is where, where are they pointing the blame at the US dollar and not the law? Yeah, I see a dollar sign there. I don't see a Bitcoin symbol. This is dollars. Dollars. Next. Oh, this is an interesting slide. I, I, I talked about this one. This is uh, basically Wall Street likes to recruit brain-damaged people to work for them because they have a, a great attribute. If you're working for a terrorist bank like HSBC, you have no empathy. If, if you lack empathy, then they'll put you on the fast track because if you care about what you're doing and you care about laundering money, you care about mass murder that you're perpetrating at your bank, you would be inconvenienced. So here they... The new study is compelling evidence that mixing emotion with investing can lead to bad outcomes. And so this is part of the story in the Wall Street Journal about Wall Street actively recruiting brain-damaged people as their prime psychotic and serial killers. Um, remember the... I mean, that's the sort of brain-damage they're talking about is uh, sociopaths and is what they're looking for. Yeah. Next. Uh, this is, uh, again, kind of the, what we're dealing about. So this is a story about how robots, uh, trading robots, you know, you've heard about algorithmic trading, robotic trading, program trading, 80% of all the trades are higher in Wall Street are by robots, algorithmic trading. Well, a lot of these robots and algorithmic trading robots read articles that are written by robots. And then based on what they read other robots write, they do trades. And then the trading produces price fluctuations, which are then picked up by robots and written about in Forbes, which has said that they use these auto robot players. And then um, the algos on Wall Street see what the robots wrote about the price differences that were created by the robots running it in the first place, and they publish that information, and then the robots trade on that again. So this is all robot to robots, for robots, by robots. There's no underlying economic fundamentals here. Zero percent interest rates, 100 percent written by robots, commented upon by robots, for robots. Uh, and um, of course, the fact that the economy is collapsing underneath should be no surprise. By the way, I'll relate the robot story to uh, a story about JP Morgan and Bitcoin. You know, Jamie Dimon had recently said if he ever saw any of his JP Morgan bankers trading Bitcoin, that he would fire them on the spot. Well, in 2013 at the London Bitcoin conference, I was approached by a guy who told me um, that he had designed a program for JP Morgan traders in London. Uh, I think they used Excel or something because he, they weren't allowed to trade Bitcoin via their actual computer. So he had to create a special program for them to uh, buy and sell Bitcoin. And he said that they, in particular, the JP Morgan traders were trying to get them to change the algorithm to exclude Max Kaiser. Because at that time, that anytime Max tweeted about Bitcoin, their algorithm would go berserk and, and do trades that they didn't want to do. So they had to like possibly get fired by leaving their desk and going to the, the algo that had been created to trade Bitcoin off of Twitter feeds with anytime Max tweeted. At that time, in 2013, there weren't very many people tweeting about Bitcoin. And uh, okay. in 2015 here, I think at the, the consensus event, there were only 400 people. So imagine what it was like in 2013. That was the John McCaffey of 2013. <laughs> You were in charge of that. We make things rock and roll all day long. <laughs> next. What do we got next? Uh, oh, this is interesting. So we're talking about how messed up Britain is. 
So to make their GDP look bigger relative to their debt, they decided to make prostitution and drugs part of the GDP calculation. <laughs> so apparently, um, the, um, the data showed that sex work generated 5.3 billion for the economy that year with another 4.4 billion for combination of cannabis, heroin, powder, cocaine, et cetera. Uh, 660,807 prostitutes. We've had an average of 25 clients for a week, each paying an average of 67. And that's just the House of Commons. <laughs> that doesn't include the whole country, right? <laughs> that's just old Compton Street on a busy, you know, on a slow day, probably. They generate that kind of action. Uh, yeah, so you're monetizing vice because, you know, debts, as you said before, Central banks are corrupt, zero percent interest rates, it's all collusion. So the debt keeps skyrocketing off the GDP. So you have to make the GDP number look better. Well, you know, advice is where a lot of innovation happens in currency and money. Uh, of course, back in 2013, Silk Road was one of the biggest uh, use cases for Bitcoin. And many people, I'm sure John McCaffrey was busy blowing all his Bitcoin back then on uh, Silk Road. He, he says he still does it, but somewhere else. Well, he, he didn't know about it back then. You just found out about it. Like, anyway, but that's oh, next, that's next, next. Yeah. All right, this is just, uh, I put this in for no real particular reason, uh, other than I thought <laughs> economics is a great thing to study uh, because you find out it's a really interesting thing. Now, actually, this, is, uh, this, this, this is pertains to the economics of extinction. So the model is so messed up. Uh, for all the reasons we're discussing, that banks are uh, designed to defraud people. Central banks are uh, pursuing policies that debase the concept of money completely. Um, governments try to monetize everything they possibly can to hide the debt. And the value in the asset market is skyrocketing uh, from those who are able to use all of these ill-gotten gains for collateral to enter into a, a laddering scheme or a Ponzi scheme to make the top assets worth more. Why is a Medigliani worth $150 million uh, while planet Earth's ecosystem is collapsing? Uh, because of the underlying economics of extinction. So these Japanese fishermen who can put these giant tuna in the refrigerator while they fish them out of existence are hoping that the price of the remaining tuna in the fridge will go up. So they, they're trying to drive the species to extinction. Uh, and, and that makes the value of stuff go higher. Which is true, uh, except when you look at cities that are being destroyed by violence and things, um, you ask yourself why. It's because the people who run these banks are freaking killing each other for the value of the of corpses. And the value of your kidneys goes up on eBay if they kill a lot of people. That's what drives their, their quote-unquote model. Next. Okay, now we come to uh, Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the what nobody saw coming. No banker saw this coming. Nobody saw this coming. And this is what is going to change the whole paradigm. Uh, and it's already doing so. And you already see the impact that it's having, both uh, economically, financially, and politically. And one of the what's the next? Next. Oh yeah. But I wanted to say that nobody saw it coming. Of course, anybody could have seen it coming if they, you know, it's just like evolution. If you saw the early Cambrian explosion of creatures, 
There were creatures that had five eyes, creatures that had like six eyes, seven eyes, two eyes, three eyes. Uh, you know, evolution was trying out certain things, they, you know, and, and eventually settled on two eyes and a backbone and, you know, two ears, things like that. Whereas the evolution, the predecessors to Bitcoin, Bitcoin didn't just erupt out of nothingness. It, there were like 20, 30 years of history beforehand of the cypherpunks of, of things like eCash, Hashcash, uh, uh, that gold one that Adam Beck, had, uh, that Nick Zabo had done. So there have been several pre-iterations, some that were never actually released and, and tested, but it was there, the need was there. Uh, the, the, the attempts were there. Uh, it didn't just erupt out of Craig Wright's <laughs> mind. Right. That's a joke, so that's a joke. The, the, the primordial soup was rich yes. in the yes. nutrients uh, which gave rise. Now I went to the uh, Toronto office of Manet, that exciting new 24 karat gold jewelry enterprise. I got it was a spin-off from gold money. Yeah. And I see on the bookshelf it had Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. Well, that's important to understand yeah. how Bitcoin came about. That's right. It's all evolutionary connected. There was a need for it. What drove the eyeball placement and the brain size and the fingers was the need. And what were they thinking? This is a good answer to this whole Bitcoin versus Bcash debate. Is somehow the Bcashers have determined that what Satoshi's vision, what Satoshi wanted, was to compete with Visa. <laughs> like what you see in all the predecessors. Who were these people? Who were the David Choms of the world? You think David Chom wanted to compete with fucking Visa? No, he wanted a way to to retain your privacy. They, the cypherpunks were not about competing with Visa. They were about making sure because they were helping build the internet, the early cypherpunks, the guys who were cryptographers, the guys who were the hackers, the guys who were eating crust off their toes, all those guys, that Richard Stallman, they, they were, they knew what they were building and they were afraid that the government and corporations would have way too much uh, knowledge about you and that you would have no privacy. They tried to warn you and part of it was creating these things uh, that would maintain your privacy, not uh, compete with Visa. That was not ever something that entered their mind. Okay, so when the white paper refers to cash, peer-to-peer -peer cash, it's a reference to this anonymity factor that comes from this history of the cypherpunk movement. They call it cash because cash is anonymous. Right, and not cash as in payments as a visa. Yeah, exactly. Like the $380 billion that were phobia or the $8 billion that were uh, HSBC laundered, it wasn't, it was in boxes for their cash, wasn't it? It wasn't like, hey, we'll take out a line of credit to exchange, you know, to facilitate your drug laundering and your drug trade. No, right. it was in cash. So the big block argument for Bcash is totally misplaced, because that's not the point. The Satoshi vision was, was not that, and therefore big blocks is, is the down the wrong, the, down a different we we'll get to that later. This is, in fact, a Genesis plot of, uh, of Bitcoin, and it's famous in the, uh, it was written and signed in the block, this uh, headline from the Times, talking about Chancellor on brink of a second bailout for banks. So uh, what we have come to believe, and certainly what we have pushed on the Kaiser Report, is, is this idea that the banks are need to be disintermediated or disrupted or put out of business, and Bitcoin effectively does that. 
I want to uh, read something from the St. Louis Met. It took me a moment to find that because uh, in terms of, you know, you'll, you'll see Roger Mayer and you'll see Craig Wright say that because Satoshi's white paper said peer-to-peer uh, -peer cash and therefore somehow that's competing with uh, Visa. Um, here's what the St. Louis Fed said, the reasons why they believe that when they were writing about Bitcoin, they said cash is re represented by a physical object, usually a coin or a note, and this object is handed to another individual, its unit of value is also transferred without the need for a third party to be involved. No credit relationship arises between the buyer and seller, as obviously it does with a Visa card. Um, it is possible, it, this is why it is possible for the parties involved to remain anonymous. The great advantage of physical cash is that whoever is in possession of the physical object is by default the owner of the unit of value. This ensures the property rights to the units of value circulating in the economy are always clearly established without essential authority needing to keep accounts. So that sounds to me more like why Satoshi called it peer-to-peer -peer cash. Bravo! Yes. Bravo. Bravo. He didn't call it peer-to-peer -peer Visa card. <laughs> no. No. No, that's not Satoshi. That's not it. No, it's cash. It's cash. It's cash along. All right, what's next? Sorry. Look. Okay, censorship resistant. You know, for us, this is very important, both uh, for the reasons just described, uh, in terms of anonymity and cash is uh, cash to cash, no third party, but it also applies to the media. You know, the media is also needs to be censorship resistant. And unfortunately, we live in an era right now where media is completely compromised and totally censored. Uh, you know, especially in the United States, all major media outlets are essentially corporate owned. NBC owned by Comcast or CNBC or MSNBC, they clearly have no uh, independent journalistic uh, voice. It's completely corporate driven. But this past week has shown the importance of censorship resistance in money and transactions. Because watch what's going to happen with Europe. They're kind of quiet right now, but the United States has suddenly capriciously said, okay, the Iran deal is off. And by the way, all of you in Germany, France, if you dare trade with them, and they already have all these billions and billions and billions of deals and contracts already set up and ready to sell to Iran, well, I think this is going to be a huge because they're being censored. Their their transactions are going to be censored. Are they going? What's going to happen at this moment? I think it's it's uh, we don't know, but I don't think they're going to uh, take it. Right, Bitcoin is censorship resistant, and and so these countries are being censored, and so they're going to go to Bitcoin. And they are already making moves in that direction. And the SWIFT system will be, they'll be distance immediate. Well, we're going to cover that in Kai's report this week, but it, actually the French uh, finance minister or somebody from the finance ministry there, they're actually saying that they want to create an alternative to SWIFT in order to deal with Iran, for the Europeans to be able to trade with Iran. Because, again, as we said at the top of the show, the U.S. as this empire it's it's self disintegrating because there's no you know they are the ones that benefit they have the exorbitant privilege as Charles de Gaulle's uh, finance minister said that they have the exorbitant privilege of having the U S dollar system but as soon as they start like randomly via tweet telling you like this entire trading block of three hundred and fifty million people in Europe you can't trade with Iran because just because nobody understands why but because you can't right and they're pushing this entire trading block into the arms of uh, Bitcoin. 
Uh, I think there's some, some serious flaws uh, in, in just the principle um, you know, building and you know, things like moral hazard just end up corrupting the system, but it doesn't mean that, that our existing financial system isn't decentralized. I'm gonna argue some of that. Um, but, but I think it is the, um, can we have a completely um, you know, monitored and regulated and controlled financial system on one side and then just you know, very basic things, uh, will any tax authority or any regulator allow anonymous transactions ever in sort of any, any form? Um, and so do we need to build these two systems in parallel or do they converge? Do we get institutional investors investing in protocol coins uh, and, and sort of how is this gonna play out? That is, is I think the point a lot of people are trying to figure out. Well, let's start at the very beginning, which is the genesis block of Bitcoin, where it says it's embedded in the Coinbase that, you know, Chancellor on break a second bailout of banks. So, Rand, do you think that's a just, you know, happens to be a coincidence that that's when the genesis block happened, or do you think that was an intentional political statement in, about the bailouts of banks? I think it was a crazy coincidence. Um, I don't think it was a, a statement of intent. I think it was a crazy coincidence, but nonetheless, very, very, very apt. Okay. I also think that you're making an assumption that you spoke about regulators and tax authorities. I think what you're making an assumption is the normal world, when I say the normal world, the current world carries on as it is and crypto comes in. I think that's going to change. I think that taxation is going to be done through smart contracts. I think that when you pay your taxation, you're going to program the smart contract to say, out of every dollar of my taxation, please pay 10 cents towards garbage and 10 cents towards this and 10 cents towards that. So I think taxation, I don't think you're going to have taxation authorities anymore at some point. You're going to have smart contracts which execute on your taxation. I almost see it like a kind of pool. So you know like an ICO pool where we say we need X amount to build a bridge and people are going to pledge X amount if they want that bridge done. That's going to happen to a smart contract. But when the smart contract is built, then the bridge is going to be built. No, that's kind of like a blockchain versus Bitcoin. Because a couple of years ago, that was the meme, blockchain versus Bitcoin. And the idea was, well, banks can employ blockchain in their back office and they can reduce their costs uh, substantially. And this is a good technology for us as a cost saver. And so if you're saying, iteratively speaking, it provides a way to more efficiently deal with taxes or collect taxes, this is a good thing and use of the technology. But I think what Josh is talking about a little bit here is that is there a break from the current system on a follow-up to other protest movements? We've had Occupy Wall Street and other movements. Obviously, my presentation is, I guess, for lack of a better word, strident, uh, you know, in the context of banking. But this represents, however, a large movement of folks. So the question is, is there going to be a break? Or, I think what you're saying is, is it, is it an iterative process uh, that, that is moved along, uh, Josh? Yeah, I mean, this, this, is the, this is the tough question. I mean, um, you know, I, I, you know, I work for a, a bit of time at, at Goldman, and you see that, that they're one of the first movers in setting up desks to study, you know, trading the market. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm having pretty high-level discussions in, you know, in higher circles that just said there's no way this is ever going to be like this is fundamentally anti what we do. Um, so, so there is there is the sort of business case where look, we want to trade volatility. We want to be in there making the markets. We want to serve clients. If our clients want to want to trade this. Uh, we should have the mechanism to trade it. But then there's going to be another part of the firm saying, but if we if we let this in, 
This is just a this is like a virus that's that's completely different than than our regulated financial system. So that revolution, you call those people the antibodies. So those are the antibodies. They're trying to protect the body against this new virus that's coming into the body. And they're usually the last people to die. Yeah, I, I, I would I would say that it's it's not that that uh, sinister like like this plot like this is this is ours. It's it, it's it's a lot more uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot more more nuanced. Again, like the the, the controlled allocation of capital. Um, I'm sorry, controlled isn't the right word. Like again, I'm I'm completely against the moral hazard that rocks these systems and creates agent principal conflicts. And bailouts and everything else. So, so you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have that clear for a second. But you know, look around and some of the, these buildings, these structures, this infrastructure. I mean, for all of the, the the news we make about you know the ICO raises and all of that, a lot of these times are, are one and done raises. So great, you know, make a lot of headlines. You, you raised a hundred million dollars. What in the real world are you going to build with a hundred million dollars? And is that team going to be able to go back to the market and raise a billion dollars, five billion dollars, thirty billion dollars? Uh, no, so so there is a structure that allows our economy to build massive energy infrastructure and power infrastructure and all of these things, um, and does a completely decentralized uh, you know Bitcoin world allow that type of capital formation, or do you have to have some guardrails? So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, meandering a few different uh, ways here. Yeah, well, to your point about decentralization, I mean, that's what the break from you know, medieval times to modern times with modern capital markets, and you can offset your risk of building these huge infrastructures of government projects through capital markets. And that's the beauty of capital markets, is you've got risk takers spread out over the entire syndicate, the entire shareholder base, the entire bondholder base. But unfortunately, in the last 20 or 30 years, that has been overridden by the uber concentration in the central bank system. So when you, talk, when you get into an economics discussion, Bitcoin versus the current banking system, it invariably you want to run up against the, the central banks and talking about the central banks. So um, I know with gold money and with gold, and I know you guys for years, that a lot of these gold buyers and adopters going back years were people that were uh, so-called libertarians or others who were not, not happy with the Keynesian model. And you know they, they, they were attacking the central banks. You know, they, they felt that the money printing was out of control and that you guys were birthed kind of in that period. And then after you got up and running, Bitcoin came along saying the same thing, but I mean, to a somewhat radical degree. Exactly. So, so uh, you know, but you're, you know, block vault, of course, you're, you're evolving and you're, you're, you're taking in this business. But you're, do you, Josh, are you happy that, do you, a lot of people on Wall Street are migrating to crypto now. Right? I mean, you feel you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, yeah but I think we were ahead of the curve, but we also were, were going very, very slow, right? We could have taken a lot more risk, could have taken, you know, cut a lot more corners. Um, but you know, so, so just to say, just to explain what what block vault is, is you know, gold money uh, uh, holds about uh, two billion dollars in client assets. Uh, the, the original gold money was, was founded in, uh, I believe, 1999 uh, by James Turk. And again, uh, as, a, as an alternative, you know, in that same time as e-gold and, and a lot of cypherpunk, um, you know, exploratory uh, technologies. Um, in fact, a lot of the original shareholders of James Turk's, uh, you know, gold money are, you know, people quite prominent in the crypto community, the, the Trace Mayors of the World and Bobby Lee and, and so forth. Um, and so, 
so, so you know, gold money was that sort of anti-moral hazard, the, the place that, that you can't bail out. You know, that, that it's the place you run into during a crisis, not run out of. Everything I said in my presentation, I got from James Turner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the but the point on block fault is what what our next step is is. You know, uh, there was a thesis, you know, it was actually about this time last year, Mike Novgorod's and a no number of uh, prominent sort of uh, old financial system that, that sort of come into, into crypto and had this thesis that now institutional capital is coming in, there's gonna be this great wave uh, that's gonna just reset all of crypto to a higher price. Um, and as a lot of things happens on Wall Street, the reflexivity, created that exact event. After I started hearing it from, then you start hearing it from people, you know, John Burbank and Kyle Bass and people on the West Coast, uh, all of a sudden, you know, it kind of, it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but, but during that time, um, you know, we, we decided that, that we would uh, focus on building infrastructure that's required for institutional capital to come into the space. Um, and the main thing, the main issue as it turns out, turns out was custody. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of legal gray area. You know, is it, a, is it a currency, is it a commodity, is it a security, how is it regulated? You know, that's the regulatory piece. But the actual free market piece is uh, you can't lose your client's money. Now you can lose them money on price, um, but you can't physically lose their money. Um, that's just a zero sum uh, uh, risk on, on, on in the formal financial system. So for this way to come in, you're not gonna have funds managing their own private keys. Uh, you're not going to have uh, that, that risk of, of permanently losing the assets. So, so they needed an insured, audited uh, custodian that was third party and separated from the conflicts of the exchange, separated from the conflicts of the dealers, so that they were just a, a custody. So that's what Blockfold is, is, is uh, we're launching the, the, the first uh, you know, fully insured, fully audited uh, custodian for, for digital assets. Um, and we thought that was a major, uh, a major uh, piece of infrastructure to get the get formal uh, financial system into the space. The analogy that I always use about institutional investors is that we sent out the invitations to the party, but we weren't ready to host the party yet. So we, like, we, we sent out the invitations and we said, come and play with us. Come, come to our world, there's amazing returns here, there's just new asset class. But we don't have any of the tools required for the institutions to train us. And now I see it happening again, talking about security services. This big hype about security tokens is going to take over the world in 2018. Where are you friends up there. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'll, give you, I'll give you just one example of, uh, of a few examples of why I think that this whole rush for security tokens and institutions. The security token is designed for institutions and big investors to buy into big projects, shipping projects, hotel projects, infrastructure projects. But as an infrastructure on blockchain, we're not ready. I'll give you a few examples. One is we don't have, or we now have, or soon will have, custodianship for the institution to be able to buy. But the way we write smart contracts, we're also not mature enough in the way we write smart contracts. Here's an example. I received tokens from an ICO that I invested in, and I received them, and I just got off a flight, and I needed to transfer the tokens to somebody else. By mistake, I sent the, con the tokens back to the smart contract, which sent them to me. Wasn't such a big panic, I phoned the ICO team, the team that ran the ICO, and I said, look, I made a mistake, I sent the contracts back to the smart contract that sent it to me, instead of into somebody else's wallet. They said, look, the way we wrote the smart contract, it's full and final, and unfortunately those tokens, there's no provision in the smart contract which allows the tokens to be paid back, so we can't redeem them and those tokens are gone. Now that was over a million dollars worth of tokens. And the way the smart contract was written, it was obviously written by someone who wasn't very experienced, 
and he made no provision for being able to open up the smart contract and remove tokens that were inserted. Now, what happens if that had to happen to a pension fund or a or an institutional investor? So that just shows that we're not ready to take on this institutional. Well, investment. most institutional investors want some equity. They don't like to give contributions or donations to projects like this. So it's, they're, they're a little bit smarter than that. But also, you know, I want to ask, you know, we're asking, is there common ground? Wall Street is kind of involved with the futures contracts. Uh, Max has been saying this for years, is that once a futures are available in Bitcoin, that this is going to show some maturity in the industry, it's, it's, it's cash settled. But Josh, what do you think of this contract so far? Yeah, so so the existing contract still doesn't have any any volume compared to traditional futures markets in in, in most asset classes, and there's a couple reasons. Um, one of them is is again, I, I think sometimes we simplify we, we simplify the financial system as sort of the the buy or the, the sell side and the banks and the bank traders and the hedge funds. But there's, but that's still just a fraction of the financial system. They're mostly uh, executing, you know, trades for much, much bigger clients, industrials, like you said, pension funds, other institutions, um, and and these funds aren't aren't looking at trading it at all. It's, it's the people that are hungry for volatility that, that are trading it. They're they're trading it because as the central banks just completely, uh, you know, just printed, you know, trillions upon trillions of dollars and suppressed the volatility in all markets. Um, you know, the, the people that, that live and die by being the best in those volatile markets, they had a very tough time. So, so they got attracted to the volatility. They don't care what it is. But they just still, want to trade market volatility. market needs to be developed before yeah. institutional investors can ever get Exactly. So sorry, again, I cut off tracks. <laughs> but but so, so first off, there's the, um, you know, what are they trading? And the second is the actual contract of what they're trading. And the, the actual contract that they're trading is not an underlying Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a cash settlement contract with a reference price on an exchange that could be manipulated because it's not very liquid. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very hard to trade a future uh, you know, against a, an exchange that you can't control or get your money out of the banking account in any, any meaningful, you know, any quick time because they're not using tier one banks and everything else, right? So, so, so again, we're still not there. The futures contract is a start, but it's not a real liquid contract. Um, and so they need things like custodian ship, they need actual Bitcoins to settle more like a commodity. Um, and when that happens, and again, that's something we're trying to, to build and work on, um, and, or, or work with people by having a custodial piece, um, I think you will see more volume. But then the question again is, who will actually need it and trade it other than the volatility triggers? So now that brings me to a question for Max, because Max is invented the virtual specialist technology, market making technology. Um, what about the indexes that are priced, that are basically pricing these contracts? So what about as well that South Korean uh, regulators uh, were showed up at some South Korean um, exchange, they're wanting to know what their liquidity, what they're, how they're pricing the Bitcoin, what the exchanges are like. So what about the underlying market making technology of these exchanges like Kraken, like Coinbase? Well, they all have the common mother of Mount Gox. And they haven't really evolved much since then. The price discovery mechanism on all these exchanges is opaque and shiny. And there's no. So there's common ground for Wall Street source to come in and well, provide. Well, Bancor, which is not that. There is a new pricing mechanism, which is not that, which is, I think, much smaller than that. Yeah, Bancor has that. Four actually, people went yeah. down to a Bancor type system. Right. Yeah, well, they have. Yeah. They have. Uh, here's Bancor. <laughs> but the huge volume of, of, of business. 
is uh, there. So that's my damn it, Mike! I tried to put answer, man. Stop that. So I have a question. So you know, listening to you guys, it sounds so reasonable and well thought and educated and whatnot. So why do you think that people like Rabini and Warren Buffett? Why are they so? Why are they reacting in this way? Why are they so ballistic? Why are they like their faces melting off? What's, what's going on? Actually, I must say, I've spent some time with Rubini, and uh, I'm going to host him on my show. We're going to do a debate, and um, he's not wrong. He's actually very right. If you listen to his points, his points are quite correct. He says he argues that we don't need everything to be decentralized, and I think that's a very smart point. We are trying to use the blockchain to do things which we shouldn't use the blockchain for. Not everything needs to be decentralized. Uh, in fact, I think some things that are decentralized will eventually become centralized again, like financial services, because. For me and you, and maybe you, a decentralized financial service system works. But for the masses, they may need some kind of governance and control, which eventually will come back to some kind of point of centralization. Yeah. Yeah, we don't do our own teeth. We go right. to a dentist and a professional. It's just sure. how, do we how do we restore trust into the professional uh, that, that is the financial service? And, and that's, I guess, what, what, what we're trying to advance. Yeah. I think that's sure. the point about Bitcoin is, uh, is forgotten. Because he obviously has to spend five minutes looking at it. He doesn't understand that like technology. And he's kind of grouping everything together into the entire crypto space, making a broad generalization. He feels threatened in some way, as does uh, Warren Buffett, as does Paul Kroger. So why why do they feel threatened? Is it because their establishment wants? Is it because they have run out of intellectual brain cells to fire? They they're, they're out of time. It's it's past their time. Is it like uh, the famous scientist said that the new science is adopted one funeral at a time? Do we have to wait for Krugman and Rabin to die before we can move on? What, what, why are they so resistant? Well, well, I think they are incentivized to be resistant. I mean, if you, if you, again, if you come back to what I believe is the core problem in, in the financial system, it's the embedded logic of moral hazard. Like, it, it's, not, it's not like moral hazard is this gray area we need to have macroprudential regulations around it. Like, it is the absolute seed of fiat banking is moral hazard. Um, it is the logic of monetary policy is manipulation. It's to trick people in, into one value of money uh, while, so you can stimulate consumption if you need to. I mean, it, it is in the actual doctrine of, of, of monetary policy to try to trick people. Um, so, so, so that moral hazard means that, that you know, at, at some point that catches up with you. You know, that, you know, at some point um, that there becomes an issue between liquidity and solvency, where things are fundamentally insolvent, and they get bailed out anyways. Um, and so, and so that that is a that is a, a problem that's in there. And if you look at Warren Buffett, where does he fund all of these oligopolies? It's by having the float. He gets to control the base float in the entire financial system through his insurance companies, uh, which allows him to have uh, an inflationary and capital advantage on everybody else in the system. Uh, which is a very good position to have. You don't want to lose that position. You, you'd like to write the bank, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the bond, and the financial crisis, and, and Wells Fargo. You know, that's a great position to have by being the very bottom of or top of the stack, bottom, bo bottom of the capital structure. He has the most to-dos. He has the most to The guy with the most chips on the old table has the most to-dos. So, so Rand, uh, you're in the space, really, uh, over there with your show, Crypto Trader. And it's kind of like, um, you know, typical CNBC programming, which is driven by like Jim Cramer, which is, you know, trade, 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 uh, you know, a bit of a uh, circus act that he does over there to get people to trade. And when you're talking about ICOs and 
is it just getting people training, or is it there is there more of an educational uh, benefit? It's certainly not uh, a trading show. It was called Crypto Trader because CNBC said that their market is very much a trading market. We wanted to run more of a technology show. And they said, look, if you want to run a technology show, go onto the science channels. We're not the right channel for it. So we put in a trading element to it. But what we do is we try and fundamentally understand the technology behind projects, the technology behind blockchains, and then let people make up their own decisions as to whether they want to buy and sell. We do, of course, have a chartist on every show that will tell people where the charts are going. He's never been right. Um, I actually have a question for Josh, because Josh, you at Full Money, you guys do an amazing research. If you guys should, should subscribe to their newsletter, because they have amazing research on money and commodities and all sorts of things, history of elements and all sorts of stuff like that. So the confusion you had mentioned about what is Bitcoin, is it a commodity, a security, or what, what, what is your answer to it? You were at the commodities desk at Goldman, you, you have... Uh, all the gold, all this money in the world, like what is it? Yeah, 100% is a commodity, um, and, but so is money. Money is a commodity, it's just a special form of commodity. How can you um, say it's a commodity? Uh, because it's a, it's a bearer asset. Uh, a bearer asset, it's an asset that, that um, has no liability attached to it. It's, 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 it's fundamentally created, obviously, through a proof of work, um, uh, just like gold is created through a proof of work or any other commodity. And the bearer owns the type. I mean, there is no liability. If you if you look at if you look at currency, um, you know most of currency is created. And, and again, this is where maybe crypto takes it a little bit to a naive extreme, but it's completely created out of thin air. Most of the money in the financial system is is created out of uh, land and real estate, um, backing uh, you know taking loans and mortgages out of that real estate. Now again, it's designed that that real estate is always inflating. Um, but, but it is backed by real estate, and a lot of it is backed by the energy trade uh, and so forth. So, but, but, but a currency is a liability. Uh, it's fundamentally debt against those assets. That, that's what circulates as, as money in a fiat currency system. Um, but, but unlike that, gold uh, or Bitcoin actually has a tangible proof of work, and the owner owns the full title without being a liability somewhere else in the system. That's why I say it's fundamentally a commodity um, rather than a currency or a security. A security, again, has a liability. What's your prospectus? What are your risks? What are, what are you actually trying to say in your security? What is your contract, uh, essentially? Um, but, but Bitcoin's not a contract. It, it's, it's, it's a proof of work. So the IRS got that one right. <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, yeah. I think so. And uh, so the other, the common ground, of course, the, the big banks on Wall Street did spend a lot of time on studying blockchain. And there were a lot of headlines like two years ago, that we like blockchain, not Bitcoin. Do you, is it your feeling that they researched it with R3 and did a lot of research and realized actually you can't extract that Bitcoin from the blockchain? I think they like the idea of private blockchains. Yeah. I don't think they like the idea of what we call a blockchain. I think when we talk about a blockchain, we talk about a decentralized public blockchain. And I think that's, that's, that they don't like at all. They'll never like that. They like the idea of controlling their own blockchain, having five machines around the office and running a blockchain. Mm -hmm. They could just run a database. What, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so so I think that a distributed private blockchain can work while things are you know generally okay in the system. But but the problem is the extremes. So so if it's not permissionless, if, it, if it's not immutable, uh, if it's not censorship or resistance, you've got this consortium of banks, and again, like 90% of the time, they're all getting along because they're all making money and a pseudo oligopoly uh, and they're doing great. 
uh, all of a sudden one of them fails, they're not doing great anymore, and the system is vulnerable, who's attacking? It becomes a, a survival of the fittest, and, and you know, sometimes they bail out their banker friends, sometimes they let them die, uh, you know, sometimes you become treasury secretary and then you get to pick. Um, but you know, the, the, the system gets it's very, um, you know, very, it's at the extremes that, that it matters. And at the extremes, none of those private blockchains that we've seen so far are going to be censorship resistant. And uh, you know, can you deal with them when, when you can't trust your uh, other counterparties? Banks don't want censorship resistance. Banks want to be able to go back and change their transactions. You know, um, there's a company I'm not going to mention names, but what they do is they provide auditing software on the blockchain for hedge funds and banks. And the banks don't want to implement it. It's very obvious why because they can't go back and change the transactions if something's wrong. Makes perfect sense. And your experience with regulators, I'm assuming you have a lot of experience with regulators being a... Are we still following? <laughs> yeah, with a publicly listed company and all your experience in banking and, and gold money. Uh, what, how do you feel, based on what you've heard from the SEC or from the CFTC, about what is going to happen in the regulatory space regarding Bitcoin and, and separately all the cryptocurrencies and ICOs? Honestly, they don't know. It's, it's, yeah. it's just still so difficult. And, and some people take it as like it's it's just a travesty that, you know, whatever five years in, that they still haven't been able to make a decision. But, but it really is fundamentally that, that difficult. Um, I actually think, you know, we've engaged regulators for, I guess it's going on four or five years now. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I think most of them at that sort of, you know, trying to follow the letter of the law, and it's just, it, it just doesn't fit any bucket. It, it just, it really doesn't. And so I, I think there has been a lot of success with a lot of groups, um, you know, going in and, you know, call it lobbying or, you know, presenting another alternative. I think they are open to, oh, I mean, I, look, there's a lot of regulators on the world, so let's, you know, but, but uh, in general, if it fits the law and it can be seen as, you know, there's some hard guardrails like know your customer and anti-money laundering that are not going to go away. Uh, there's, just, there's, no, there's no way that they're not going to go away. So, so if you kind of put those guardrails in place as, as immutable. <laughs> well, um, the yeah. brain drains. Uh, another shape shift, they didn't like recognize New York, so they left. And Bitcoin's a global phenomenon, and various jurisdictions are competing to be the Shangri-La or Switzerland of Bitcoin. And it's very portable, people can go there. If they don't like the regulations in the U.S., they'll leave, and they'll go somewhere else. So, um, you know, the, the, the leverage is on the customer, which is not on the institution in this Bitcoin space, which is frankly for the institution, because they are used to having all the leverage. But if all the major wealth, let's say there's, you know, Bitcoin's worth 140 billion, let's say. Let's say in another two or three years, it's worth five or six trillion dollars. And the banking system is collapsed, and the government's in bankrupt. They're going to come to the Bitcoin community and say, please bail us out. And the, and the Bitcoin community will have no valuable asset that can be moved around easily. And they'll say, well, here, here are the regulations. You, you write them the way we did that. And that's, that's the battleground. It's not, it's not waiting for regulators to make up that, like, and understand how the technology works. No. The price is going to keep going up because they failed, and they failed for decades. And the power is shifting toward the Bitcoin community, the crypto community, that's now sending hundreds of billions of dollars, instead of trillions of dollars. And we don't, we don't care what the regulators think or do, or what they look like, or where they look. We don't, honestly don't care. So that's my point. I mean, if you look at regulators today, what options do they have? The only tool that they have left is how they can categorize it for tax purposes. Otherwise, they've lost the fight. They, they can't ban Bitcoin trading because they'll lose the next election, probably. Um, 
Right, so there's a huge shift. And, and you see it already in, in the whole continent. The entire continent of Africa is being fundamentally recapitalized using cryptocurrency. One, one thing that I learned from being in the mining industry, uh, never count out the government. They've always got one or two or three or five tricks up their sleeve um, uh, with, with the way the rules can slightly modify or change. I, I'm still really worried, like this whole, we can't just ban it. I, I generally agree uh, that, that it'd be very tough politically to ban it at this point. But you know, what if you have some major terrorist event that's clearly tied towards Bitcoin? You know the PR campaign. But we did already, so I just be sick. The terrorism is rampant, it's every day, and nothing's being done. We already have it. Yeah, but the facts on the ground also, if that's an argument, is you know, a few years ago when consensus only had 400 people, or at that first Bitcoin conference, there were like 20, 30 people there, and the market cap was $50 million at that first conference for Bitcoin, the entire crypto space. So as they get more power, Binance emerged only a year ago, and I think you tweeted something about they have more revenue than uh, Goldman Sachs or more profit than yeah, Goldman Sachs. More profit in a single quarter, yeah. In a single quarter than Goldman Sachs. So that, of course, gives them power to start to um, basically uh, you know, hire the Michael Cohens of the world and pay some friend of the president 100,000 a month. No, I, I, absolutely. The, the capital in this space is extremely important. And, uh, and is creating you know, resiliency that it's, it's, it's tough to get back out for, for sure. I think we must have perspective that the entire market cap of crypto is today $400 billion, which means that real fiat money that's actually flowed into cryptocurrency is probably no more than $100 billion. It's a non-existent market in the world financial system. We're talking about $100 billion of capital, maybe even right, it's compounding at 1% a day. Of, um, 
uh, you know, call it a utility settlement coin, call it, uh, call it a, um, you know, crypto asset, proof of work or proof of stake. Um, you know, I think, you know, we're working on all these things, um, but, but it does make a lot of sense uh, to have a more trusted system, a more trusted supply chain, uh, where you can track the, you know, the, the, the um, you know, the, the, the shipment all the way through. You can track the financing, the letters of credit, you can track uh, the futures market or tied to an underlying asset rather than a benchmark. Uh, there's a lot of good things in, and, and so I think there's a, and that may come out of industry and people like us rather than coming out of an exchange or a bank. Um, and and that, that I think will be an interesting use case. There's lots like that, it's just one I'm familiar with. What about the censorship resistance on, in a geopolitical sense? Um, you know, Venezuela was the first to come out with their own national cryptocurrency, the Petro. I don't know how well that did or not, but uh, it was inspired because of basically them being cut off the SWIFT system or not able to accept dollars and trade. So do you think this is going to be, uh, I know it's not Wall Street at common ground, but it's certainly with Europe, the likes of Europe, not even an enemy, like possibly looking at alternatives to the SWIFT system. Not only the SWIFT system, I think why Venezuela did what they did was to bypass the sanctions, the investment sanctions. Mm -hmm. People were buying futures using, well, have been buying, may buy uh, futures using the Petros token to, to invest in, to buy futures, which gave them investment uh, despite the protection the sanctions. I don't know how much Trump and anybody else could do about that, other than, other than saying to people, you're not allowed to buy Petros. But I don't think that they can prove it. They don't have the tools to prove whether people are buying Petros or not. Right. Iran is going down the path, China, Russia, Germany now is siding with those guys by allowing these new crypto bonds, uh, debt swapping to place. So that's that's the alliance that's forming against the fiat world. So it's fiat versus crypto on a geopolitical basis. Yeah, well, I, I think that, that that touches on another thing, and that, that is the sort of using uh, the financial system, you know, because it has those guardrails around KYC, and because it's been such a lockdown, centralized system, it's using that for geopolitical means. Um, and I think there are countries that, you know, many countries beyond, you know, Iran and Venezuela that, that really don't like that. <laughs> um, yeah, but even just African countries, a lot of small African countries, the big banks just don't want to work with them because of the KYC for too little money and it's not worth their time. Well, the biggest problem in African countries is that they don't have money because the central governments are all controlled by corrupt people. Yeah. So the people want a completely decentralized form of currency. And there is talk that maybe Zimbabwe, which is ironic because they're probably the most backwards financial service system in the world, the financial system in the world, they may be the first country to adopt a cryptocurrency out of necessity. So uh, I went and spoke to the head of the Rwandan Stock Exchange and the head of the Reserve Bank. And at the end of the discussion with the two of them, they, we planned a scenario and I said, what happens if the people in the street decide that tomorrow they don't want to use your currency anymore and they want to use Bitcoin? And he said, well, after thinking about it for a few minutes, he said, I don't think there's anything we can do. So, so what does all this uh, geopolitical uh, machinations have any impact on US dollar going forward? So US dollar, world reserve currency, everything's based on dollars, commodities are pricing dollars, it's the basis of the US empire, it is US dollar. If, if the various countries escape the tyranny of the US dollar and US dollar hegemony, uh, is that happening from your perspective here, global macro guy? You've lived in, uh, from South Africa, you've seen a lot 
heavy political events going on? I mean, what, what's your take on that? I think when you live in a, on a continent like Africa, and you experience corruption firsthand, and you experience currencies devaluing themselves 50% a day and, and, and stuff like that, we, we're used to that. We don't get heart, heart palpitations when our currency goes up 1 or 2%. Uh, one or 2%. You kind of realize if you do want a decentralized Bitcoin-type uh, global currency that's not dependent on any one government. So censorship resistance. Censorship resistance. Completely decentralizing the government, completely putting the hands in the world of a the currency in the world of a decentralized community. That's a negative dollar. Very negative dollar. So what, what do you think of statement coming out of Russia saying that the internet was dominated by the US, cryptocurrencies will be dominated by Russia? Your thoughts. Brand. How are they gonna dominate it? By having the best technology. It's a free market. They it's a free market. Exactly. It's a free market. That's their goal. In other words, their goal, their stated goal, unlike other countries that are trying to, like, uh, let the competition begin. But who's competing with them right now? Not the US. Um, not Europe. Well, Singapore, Estonia, um, not the US. The US has been very slow to regulate here, and I think it's going to be a fatal flaw because they're even losing people to Puerto Rico, which is a territory of the, of the, United, of the United States because. They've been too slow to regulate. I think the countries are going to all over again. They're saying we're going to be the first in crypto space with you know dominate, and it's up to the US. Forget it. Forget it. I spent time in Japan, I spent time in Korea. In Korea, they're unregulated but more favorable. And in Japan, it's a it's open market for cryptocurrency and it's very favorable. When you spend Forget about what you hear in the news or what you read in Western media. When you go there and you're on the ground in Japan and in Korea, you realize that the US is very badly behind in this race. And the longer they take to regulate favorably towards cryptocurrencies, the more they're losing. And, and, and it's a serious loss. Because in Japan, when you walk around, there are Bitcoin billboards. There are stores everywhere that accept Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a taboo thing. It's something that, that everybody's using. In Korea as well. In Korea, they adopt technology much quicker, or certainly they've adopted this technology much quicker. But this is, these are facts on the ground, Josh, that we were saying. It's like, once a major terrorist attack is financed by Bitcoin, once, the entire, once it's part of the fabric of the global financial system, it's hard to dismantle it without causing chaos. Look at with interest rates rising in the United States, and look at the chaos happening in, in Argentina, Mexico, and uh, Brazil, and and Turkey with their currencies. No, absolutely. It's, it, you know, as I've said a few times, the, the test is when you get into the, it's not when things are generally going okay, yeah. it's when things go bad that, 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 and what I think is the most amazing thing that is happening, you know, I've said this you know, before on a pop podcast once, I mean, if we get a 2008 style event again uh, in, in the next couple of years, um, there will be no political uh, um, mandate to bail out banks. Um, there just won't be. There'll be riots on the street. Um, but that, that was a one-time thing. So I guess what, what I'm always fascinated in is we're building this sort of decentralized resiliency that can keep the world moving and trading and, and generally trying to cooperate. So, but, but the question is, do it, does it come together? Or does it keep, is it like we're building a, a backup bridge somewhere and when it's ready, you turn on the generator, right? I, I, I don't know if, if they will converge or, or if they're just, uh, you know, if we're just building our own sort of resiliency for the inevitable uh, next crash. So I think that the next time that there is a next crash is going to be the best day in the world for cryptocurrency, providing it doesn't come very soon. Because we need time to build the infrastructure. We're not ready for the masses to put their money into us. 
I think the best thing that can happen to us is that it happens in an isolated country. So another Argentina. Because if Argentina happens again, and Argentinians bail towards Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, and the rest of the world say, hold on a second, Argentina failed, small country, not really big enough to damage the world economy, and oh wow, people are using cryptocurrency, decentralized currency, and it's, it's working. Hold on, this thing might work. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's that's why we're building infrastructure. Um, uh, because why not? I mean, I, again, I, I and and I don't want to take this to a pessimistic, you know, gold bug route here, but uh, no, I, I do think we have some serious flaws in monetary theory. Um, you have all these central banks retiring when they only did half of the job. Uh, now they're all leaving, patting themselves on the back that they fixed the economy. No, shale gas fixed the economy. Uh, you know, engineers and decentralized economy fixed the economy, uh, not not the banks. And, and if they only did half the job, they printed the money. They haven't retracted it yet, which is the harder half of the job, um, and they're already, you know, patting themselves on the back. So, yeah. So, so the next energy crisis, the next time energy prices start going up, and you have a feedback loop. So again, they, and they also have this this um, this simplistic view that that now inflation is gone forever. Uh, we, you know, you start getting into like new money theory and all these things that are now propping up in the like Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, no more interest rates, no more forward bond sales. We're just going to keep the interest rate at zero forever and sell, you know, sell three month paper because they'll always buy it. Um, and and you just you these crazy views of money. But no, when energy prices finally start rising again, because they've been falling they for most of the last five years, and, and they've started. Yeah. When energy prices start rising again, then the term premium on, on future debt starts going up, and, and interest rates on the forward curve keep going up. Uh, and then people want to get into hard assets, not, not monetary assets, and then they buy commodities, and then they just go up and up and up, and then people want higher wages uh, to, to, you know, to eat and heat their homes, um, and this whole balance sheet can't be unwound in that situation. So I fundamentally believe an energy crisis will create the next financial crisis, just as I believe that the energy crisis was a big reason for the, for the last financial crisis, um, and we need to have infrastructure that's prepared for that, because uh, the banks aren't prepared at all. And look what's happening in Italy, in, in Europe. You see they're talking about a parallel currency there. All the major parties there were talking about it, and now um, the Five Star Movement and the Northern League are discussing right now their deal for a partnership is having a parallel currency. So this could be part of like just taking apart the euro and an exit from the euro. As I said to Muriel Rubini, I said we can't have, I can't have a, a, a serious discussion with an Italian about a future currency. Yeah. About any currency. Yeah. Uh, okay. Should, should we take some some questions from the uh, from the audience? All right. Sorry, I've always been very good uh, listening to me. Should I go around with this? I'll go around with the mic. I think at this point I'm going to have a second panel. Okay. Okay. Great. 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 Great.
cryptocurrencies and blockchain, it's important for us to seek common ground. It's important for us to look for regulation. It's important for us to try and influence things through cooperating. And if you kick the snake with a bare foot, you're going to get bitten. So if, if we continue to have this non-dialogue, as I hear it all over the world, I've been attending conferences for the last three months, neo-conferences all over Europe, uh, in Zurich, all over. If you call people necrophiliacs, they're going to react to that. So, um, you know, you're free to do whatever you want, but this is just my opinion. If we're talking about common ground, please let's seek some common ground. And where do you find yeah. common ground with the you know GRG group was telling their customers to go hang themselves and destroy thousands of businesses across the United States? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, if I understand that if there's an intention to uh, come up with an equitable solution in an economy that works best for all stakeholders in society, um, then the language can be more anodyne, and um, the discussion can be had. Um, in, in a round table uh, where uh, people's sensitivities are respected. But you know we're in a situation right now where the banking system and the financial system has been co-opted by some very nasty folks. So I think the Bitcoin folks are happy to see common ground. We're happy to reach out to the banking system if they're willing to throw down their weapons of mass destruction, financial destruction, as Warren Buffett has called them, and come to the table in a sensible way. But if they want to continue to do business as usual, uh, then they will not find a pleasant uh, scenario unfolding for them. Yeah, but I, no, I, I think um, you're right. And, and, and that's what we did at Gold Money, too. You know, we're, we're trying to create a constructive choice um, uh, discussion. But, but the we also have to remember that the banking system is you know, at least you know when, when you get out to the sort of bailout, sort of moral hazard core of it, that's not voted. In fact, they they actually um, you know go out of the way to obfuscate what their actual agenda is. You know, the the ten point you know pitch by Ken Rogoff, um, you know why cash is bad and why it enables laund money laundering and all of that. When clearly the agenda is to get to negative interest rates. You know, so but, but they create this PR pitch to make it digestible. Right, so so, the, and that wasn't a democratic choice. That's a that's a choice that that comes within the private sector, specifically from within the within the banking sector, that, that that's not being uh, political. So I think you need to, like, we do need to have the problem is both academia and, and the banking system aren't aren't used to this type type of dialogue. It's become so monoculture uh, in both monetary economics as well as in the banks, and now the monetary economists. And, uh, sit in the hedge funds and the banks, uh, and they all agree with the same theory, um, and so so they're not in a they're they're not used to debate, and so so but, but I, I I'd like to always um, you know bring bring these type of uh, debates forward. Yeah, well, on the uh, the, the issue of uh, provocative speech, I guess part of what motivates me is you know I was a stock broker on Wall Street for seven years. Um, I worked uh, for the pretty much through the entire decade of the 80s. And the attitude that bankers have toward customers, uh, I can tell you from talking to thousands of stockbrokers and working in the banking industry and being you know, quite successful in the banking industry, 
uh, um, that the attitude toward customers is uh, reprehensible. The attitude toward customers are that they are expendable, that they are chum, that they are garbage. And uh, that's, that's the way bankers, that's the way stockbrokers talk. That's the way they view their jobs as garbage collectors. Well, 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 Tony, even, even we had, uh, you know, the conversations in, in, in you know, Central Europe where, you know, they looked at our system and they're like, oh, well, this is bad because our most profitable customers, you know, not, not, not clients, not creditors, our most profitable customers are the poorest people. That, that's who we can give the sort of high, high rate loans. That's the people that overdraw their account. And, you know, and that was actually mostly, you know, that was the most profit-filled part of their, their uh, business was, was their, their, their poorest clients, which, yeah, again, like there's, there's a fundamentally flawed banking system when the retail bank CEO uh, doesn't want to lose his profitable uh, poor people. It's like that Stanley Kubrick uh, comment about the uh, U.S. military, is that they'll, they'll bomb innocent civilians all day long, but you can't write a profanity on the side of the bomber. Yeah. Or, no, a topless woman. But also, um, I do want to say, somebody who spoke very well, and he was a kind and, and articulate man, and, and dashing and charming was Barack Obama, who said, let's move forward, don't look back. And um, we now have Gina Haskell about to become the uh, torturer-in-chief of the CIA. We have the same banking frauds going on. Eric Schneiderman, nice guy, publicly. Um, well, he did the same thing. He, he negotiated with banks and pretended and had huge headlines about this $25 billion agreement between all the attorney generals to get rid of the mortgage fraud. and. That was all taxpayer funds. So, like everybody, they, they did it all with uh, diplomacy and, and nice words, and they were all kind and, and friendly to each other. But at the end of the day, all the underlying problems are still there in the banking system. All the underlying problems are still there in the um, you know torture and rendition system. Yeah, I think France has an interesting point. We spoke to a, a legislator there by uh, name Luc Saucier, who was during the crisis of 2008 period in France. They said part of the problem with this crisis is that the public doesn't understand the gravity of the problem because the language is horrible. When bankers and regulators and the media speaks about financial crimes, they do so in words that do not express the gravity of these fallacious crimes. So in France, there's a movement to make bank fraud, as you saw with Goldman Sachs or Bank of America or Wells Fargo, to use the language of pedophilia. That's in the legislation in France. To but shame they, they didn't pass, but it was, right. yeah, to shame these people with, the, with that language. So language is very important to understand the gravity of these crimes to society, to the individual, the violations that are taking place. It's fallacious. You know, the, the Me Too movement, the Me Too movement can apply to all of us when you consider the banking industry. Yeah, I, I think the the um, the debate needs to be more public, and that's exactly what crypto's doing. Um, and, and actually, one of the things that I like, you know, we talked a little bit about financial infrastructure and the kind of the plumbing behind the weeds, of, you know, settlement and correspondent banking systems, and you know, custodials and transfer agents and all of these things. Uh, this is now like we've gone from you know just just Bitcoin to smart contracts, and now you have all sorts of teams rebuilding this financial infrastructure in their own way with their own sort of modifications. Um, and it's becoming sort of coder dialogue, all of this, this, you know, this, this plumbing system. And yeah, you know, six months ago, no one really thought about insured custodians. And now we're, we're building it. Now you know, there's five or six teams that are working on custodial so solutions. 
I'm sure that will happen in transfer agency. I'm sure that will happen in all sorts of uh, pieces of the, of the legacy system that are going to get rebuilt, but at hyper sort of Silicon Valley style speed um, because we're having this dialogue. And, and I think that's, that's ultimately a good thing because we need to then get this debate about money to the public. Uh, and and that's, that, that's happening from the ground up but we're not allowing it at all from the top down. So, so a lot of the Bitcoin debates that are, that are uh, being had at the top are very sugar-coated. They're, they're very sugar-coated, but yeah, we'll make it fit into the system. You know, banks and Bitcoin can be friends, and we're gonna get it in that way. And then once we get in, you know, ha ha, I got you. I think that's, that's the approach that a lot of the crypto uh, community is taking. Um, and I don't know where I was going with that, I'm just- Well, um, so where is the common ground though, to, to uh, go back to the question? So, Clearly, common ground is that we're talking about uh, assets. Okay, I agree with you in terms of it's most closely resembles a commodity, but it is not purely in the sense of commodity as we understood that would turn to mean, but it is close to a commodity. And so Wall Street's in the business of raising capital and spreading risk around and taking a, the power approach to running the free markets under Adam Smith was break from medievalism and concentration of power with the monarchy. You know, the, the Enlightenment, and we are the better for it. But now we've gotten kind of back to the monarchy. You know, the, the, all that free money from the central banks are leading toward these oligopolists to arise. The number of securities on the New York Stock Exchange is shrinking. And, and I've been saying this for a number of years, and now a lot of other people make the same comment. The entire New York Stock Exchange is being taken private. So you're going to end up with a fuel, neo-fuelism. It seems is a risk. Okay, there's a bold statement, but your thoughts on that is that an over eight statement or something close to what's happening? It's definitely the rate of change is moving in that direction, um, uh, to, you know, towards more oligopolies, and and again, all of this 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 money that was was created in the financial system, the the distribution mechanism was to give it to the banks first, right? So. So you know the they, the central banks would buy assets off the balance sheet of banks in the financial system. Banks got to touch it first, um, and and then they got to decide how to allocate it later. Um, and it sort of trickled down into the system. Um, and if they got it first, they talked to their biggest you know corporate clients. They talked to their biggest wealth clients, and they got first touch on everything uh, that, that that came out. So yeah, we we naturally had an advantage to the point where it's actually really hard for a lot of startups to sort of create profit. Uh, it's a lot easier to go out and raise $100 million than earn $100 million, you know? Right. That, that's, that, that's the reality of the system. So people then play the financial rent-seeking game rather than building new products. Well, what happens to uh, people enjoy the rights they enjoy if all that capital power is being aggregated to a few hands? You know, what happens to the Constitution, for example? Is it being undermined in the broader sense? Are people at risk of losing uh, rights that they enjoy, um, even more so than they have been having their rights taken away from them as we head into more of a, a surveillance state. But just through the condition of having a few private equity groups, you know, Warren Buffett with his $300,000 per share stock, you know, having five or six guys, that's it. Isn't, isn't that neo-feudalism? So yeah, if no, rights are at risk, then what are, what are we willing to do to defend our rights? Are we willing to use coarse language? <laughs> because using coarse language is a lot less consequential than the alternatives 
But if you're having yeah, your rights taken from you. Well, we're seeing it play out in real time in the political environment. And, and the, I you know, predicted this uh, four or five years ago, five or six years ago now, that we're gonna, we're gonna see a wave of populism. You know, I think there was the, the piece about uh, uh, it, you know, the, the pitchforks are coming from us. That was now five right. years ago. And we've only consolidated you know, more, more wealth. And so we're seeing this happen in the political realm. So, so to answer your question, sir, I would say, bring it back and say, uh, I feel as though my rights are being threatened, and therefore I think the language is getting heated. So that's my ultimately my answer. So yes, the next question. Yeah, this is for Josh. Um, I'm not an economist, but one of the things that we're being led with was the idea that economic crises and cycles far predate fiat currencies and a Fed that prints a lot of money, and that since the Fed has I mean, just the new system has actually made booms and busts much, much less volatile and much less violent. So uh, the two questions I have are one, what, what's your response to that and the idea that yes, um, there are issues, but we're probably in a better economic cycle than we were in the pre-fiat, pre-Keynesian uh, policy or money printing era. And the, the second question is, what worries you? Like what will the crisis look like? Like right now it's easy as the $400 billion assets go up against the big guys, but what worries you about a world, world where cryptocurrency ha has much more prominence and what's that crisis going to look like when we're in that era uh, and when you get the currency? Yeah, so, so the, 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 the part about the, you know, have we smoothed the cycle and made it less, uh, not at all. I mean, uh, you know, ask someone in Japan, ask someone in, in you know, Southeast Asia in the 90s, you know, ask about the tequila crisis and, and the Russian uh, you know, crisis. We've exported our our um, we've exported our, our our economic cycles to extreme busts in, in other places um, in, in, within a collective financial system to the point where a lot of these countries that should have higher sustainable you know economic growth from what's th this amazing thing that's happened over the last you know 20 30 years and and the urbanization and you know the reduction in extreme poverty. So many great things are happening in emerging markets, and yet at the same time, those emerging markets are exporting capital to Wall Street for speculative reasons, uh, which makes no sense. So, so these these these, com these countries are, are you know, emerging markets developing amazing infrastructure, um, uh, amazing amazing you know technologies and communication and payments, uh, and there because of, of the rate of growth of the middle class, they should be consistently booming at. Eight, nine, ten percent growth, uh, but instead they'll boom for a few years until Wall Street pulls the money back and then they bust. Um, and, and that that system would not happen in a decentralized gold standard, a decentralized Bitcoin standard. Uh, the market would regulate and capital would flow uh, in the right direction. But right now it's not flowing in the right direction despite all the good things happening. So uh, any economist that that takes credit for a smooth business cycle in the United States or the OECD. Um, I, I think is is totally uh, a fraud. But uh, Josh, the conceit of the question was that we have less booms and busts in the fiat era than in, let's say, the gold standard era. Is that correct? Yeah. Again, I don't think that's fundamentally correct, and it's also it's also apple oranges. I mean, the the technology we have now, the energy infrastructure that we have now. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things uh, that that would allow, would have allowed us in a more decentralized economy to allocate capital properly rather than from top down and decided, you know, from a, from a bank that says, you know, one for you, three for me, 
one for you, three for me. So you that, characterize the goal as a decentralized economy. Uh, absolutely. Versus the fiat bank, central bank system as a, as a, as a centralized economy. Yeah, absolutely. But they people do. would say that they would, they would assume the opposite and think that gold is more monolithic and can't grow, you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't promote credit expansion and that it's a bummer. Yeah, so, so th that's the confusion with gold being the entire currency float of the economy, which is never the case. Uh, most of the money in the economy is always created out of, out of debt, out of cooperation, out of obligations. Uh, and at the end of the day, energy is the most important money in the economy, uh, not gold. It's just that gold is a very specific form of energy. Uh, it's, 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 it's a form of economic energy that takes a ton of energy to produce, but once it produces, it can last forever. So it's a duration-free form of energy. So right. it's, and it correlates perfectly with food and everything else. That's, that's not contingent on whether you're talking gold or supply. Yeah, uh, again, I, I think this, this notion that we always need to uh, centrally plan the economy, you know, e economics got under this root where instead of being observing what's going on in the economy, they wanted to manipulate and control it. Um, you know, and that, that started hundreds of years ago. Um, and so all these economic theories are built around how do we control the economy rather than saying, you know, look, at the end of the day, people generally like to cooperate. They like to invest in each other. Uh, they, they like to feed themselves. Uh, you know, we don't need to go try to take care of everybody uh, with a monetary system. We should, we should allow a monetary system be developed organically uh, and let people trade uh, in, in whatever form they want. Well, so again, the choice, I think, is the key thing. It's more keeping with the alignment. Uh, then we had a 2008 crisis, 
So we, we know that another major crisis is coming, probably the central bank one, because all that garbage is on the balance of the central banks. The central banks are not going to be able to get up that stuff off their balance sheet. They're leveraged 60, 70, 100 to 1. One of them's going to blow up, or Deutsche Bank is about to blow up. It's going to blow up. And then, so this, so we, you're suggesting that the infrastructure for crypto has to quickly be built before this impending 2008-style mega crash. Dun, dun, dun. This sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I mean, that, that is what my mission is, because right or wrong, I believe it, and I believe that, that uh, not enough people are taking it that serious. Well, I mean, your, your service at Gold Money, by the way, is an on-ramp to be outside of a lot of chaos. And not only that, but now you've got crypto. So just as a plug for, for Gold Money, and, 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 and then when Mother's Day comes around, you can buy 24 karat gold investment jewelry in the net, as a lot of you have. So this is like, this company is, this, this stock of this company, by the way, is awfully cheap compared to what's coming. Okay, one more We're question. We're not going to pump the, the company. <laughs> Just, okay, that's why I'm changing the t-shirt. One more question, and then we have to go. My question's for either of you guys. Well, I'll make a statement first. The buy side and the sell side. In other words, bank, investing banks, the customers, and the, the banking side have, have never had common ground. Main Street and Wall Street have really never had common ground. I think what we're looking at here is when we do see a collapse, not if we see a collapse, is a timing is a timing issue. Because the banking system, as Max pointed out, is fundamentally not stable. And if you look at the assets versus the real liabilities, that's where the real problem rests. So the, I guess the bigger issue is when we move forward when the next um, crash happens, not not if it happens, what's the role that um, crypto is going to play when US dollar hegemony is gone? That's, that's the question. Yeah, I think that's the, the amazingness you know, of the technology is it's, 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 it's going to do what it does. The blockchain is just going to keep, keep growing. Uh, my, my problem is that it's, it's, it's not a fundamentally stable currency from a, um, from a point that I believe that the design of the system will keep it always volatile versus other things um, you know because it because it has such rigid supply dynamics uh, that, you know you can't you can't increase the supply uh, very well and demand becomes the entire uh, volatility of, of, of the price equilibrium so it'll be very difficult to ever measure a worker's wage in units of Bitcoin uh, for instance uh, in, in my opinion um, and so that will be a tough thing to deal with um, as a replacement to a, a fiat system. I believe fundamentally that currency is always built or always uh, a reflection of energy um, and, 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 and an, the energy in the economy. Um, so I think we, my, my personal view is, is that uh, we're gonna build more, uh, more alternatives uh, to, to Bitcoin and Ethereum um, and we're gonna keep working on this technology and uh, you know, again, I, I hope it's I hope it's ready and an ability to do things like make contracts and pay wages in a, in a fairly uh, logical unit relative to the economy. Right. So my my view is that Bitcoin and viewed in in relation to store value, medium of exchange, unit of account. Right now, Bitcoin is a store of value. It's being bought as a store of value as a commodity. At some point. Um, at a much higher price, it becomes more of a medium of exchange as ubiquity sets in, more people own it, use case is greater, a couple of countries go Bitcoin crazy, 
Now you've got a medium of exchange. Uh, then we had to our unitive account where people were demanding wages in Bitcoin, things are priced in Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin-centric world. Now, what, at what point does that happen? It'll be a subset of the value of gold. So gold is approximately, what, $7 trillion in, is the value of the above-ground stock of gold, approximately. So I think Bitcoin is currently 140, 120 billion. I think once it gets to 20, 25% the value of gold, whatever the price of gold may be, gold is also a fluctuating price. You'll start to see uh, a kind of a stability set in with the price of Bitcoin as the equilibrium of gold and the rest of the financial world is. And, and the volatility is reduced significantly uh, because it'll be at $100,000 or $200,000 a coin and you'll see 20, 30 bucks volatility, but it'll be at a much higher price. Yeah, $100,000 Bitcoin is about 25%. Um, the, the money stock of Bitcoin at 21 million coins would be equivalent to uh, to 25% of the gold stock, about $100,000. Um, so, so, but, but then the, the question about uh, what does that do to the mining incentives and relative to the rest of the economy, prices for everything is going to have to be, a, you know, a dollar is, is not a natural unit. A dollar is not a meter. A dollar changes, you know, by the second and by the year and by the decade. Um, so, so we don't know what that relative is. <laughs> Yeah, so anyways. It'll be in Satoshi's. I think we have to wrap it up now. And so thank you everybody for attending. It's Block Thank you, Max and Stacey. We'll be mingling out there, uh, and then I'm sure we'll get uh, kicked out at some point. But uh, please grab a t shirt. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. <laughs>